Luke chapter 2, as we said. Before we turn there, let me just give a, a, a short introduction. The sermon is called Testifying of the Savior. We're going to see a few testimonies of the Savior. We're going to go much quicker than usual. We're going to not deal with verse by verse. We're not going to deal uh, with a lot of the things like we normally would do. But we're going to look at the overall picture of testifying of the Savior. Those who testified that day, and we should be those that testify of the Savior. Those of us that are Christians. And really, we could have gone all the way back to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is not an accident. Luke chapter 1 doesn't speak directly about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's all about um, uh, Zacchaeus, the father of John the Baptist. It's about John the Baptist. It's about uh, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Uh, and it's about um, uh, Zechariah, who actually um, was a priest and was in the temple... And as he was in the temple, an angel came to him and said that he would have a child. Now, that was a miracle. Because Elizabeth was very old, past childbearing years. He was very old. You know, and so he kind of didn't believe it. Not outright disbelief, saying, no, I'm not going to have a child. What are you talking about? But he was terrified at the sight of the angel. He was shocked at the news that he received. And the angel said, okay, you won't be able to speak again until this comes to pass. Okay, that's, that's Luke chapter 1. And it sets the stage for the coming of Messiah. And uh, one of these days, this would be a good sermon. I almost preached this one, but um, decided to preach what I'm preaching instead. I hope by the Lord's direction. But uh, I would challenge you, if you like to do Bible studies, and I hope you do, uh, if you like to do Bible studies, look for all the connections between Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. The connections that are made, and there's many, I'll just give you a few of them, you know, um, both Jesus and John the Baptist were miracle babies, born in impossible situations, born to a woman well past childbearing age, John the Baptist, born to a virgin, the Lord Jesus Christ. Both were prophesied of in the Old Testament. John the Baptist was prophesied that he would come. And uh, you can find those verses like in Isaiah and in Malachi. The Lord Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament. In fact, you should never read the Old Testament without looking for the Lord Jesus Christ because he's there. That's the whole purpose of the Old Testament is to make the way for the promised Redeemer starting in Genesis 3.15 and working its way through. Last week, we had our annual Christmas service um, with reading. I didn't have it today because I figured that would be difficult for so many of you, and some were going to be traveling and gone. And so we did it last week. And we followed the scarlet thread through the Old Testament up to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and then beyond all the way to the cross and the rising again. And not only that, both their births were announced by an angel. Another connection? Uh, there's a whole lot more that we could make, but I'm, I'm going to stop right there and uh, just read for you chapter 1 of Luke, verses 78 and 79, the words of the father of John the Baptist. Very humble and, and at the same time great words. Verse 78 of chapter 1, Zechariah says, Through the tender mercy of our God, 
with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our way in the way of peace. So he knew the importance of John the Baptist, but he also knew why John the Baptist was so important. John the Baptist really wasn't important in himself. In fact, John the Baptist himself would later say that, uh, that he must uh, increase, but I must decrease. The importance of John the Baptist wasn't in John the Baptist himself. The importance of John the Baptist was his mission, which was to point men, women, children to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. And what a great honor that was. So great was that honor that Jesus Christ himself said, of, of all those born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. And the Lord said that during his ministry. And why was he so great? Because all the prophets were saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. For a thousand years, they said he's coming. More than a thousand years. I don't know how long, but a long time. <laughs> he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And John the Baptist gets to say, he's here. <laughs> That's why he's the greatest. Well, there's a lot more we can say there, but that's not the message. But I will read the first three verses again. I'm not going to read all the verses, 1 through 20. Uh, our brother Pat did that, and I uh, hope you heard them well. But uh, I do want to bring out a few things about the timing of his birth. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Well, you heard it from the King James. Uh, you just heard it from the New King James. Some of you are carrying ESV Bibles. They read a little bit differently than that. you know. And in some ways, that's a shame. In some ways, that's a shame. I'm glad for the translations, the good translations. But uh, one thing we lose from that is the continuity of memorizing scripture. I memorized from the old King James. Those are the scriptures that I know. And, and when I quote from memory, it would be the old King James, because that's what I know. And Pastor Mike, I'm sure, is New American Standard. So we'll throw another translation in there. All of them excellent translations, by the way. But it's kind of a shame that we just have different Bibles. But in some way, it's a great blessing, because it gives us a better idea of the Greek. Each has their own flavor. Each has their own ideas behind it. And it could be very, very helpful. I, I make it a purpose uh, to read the Bible through each year in a different translation and get a little bit different flavor of things. Um, so that's a little help for you there. If you don't know Greek, it can help. <coughs> Excuse me. Here, here's the question. Was it a census? Was it a registration? Or was it a taxation? Okay, good question. Most likely, it was a registration that was being taken by census so they could tax them. <laughs> That's what it was, you know. So that, there's the purpose there. <coughs> Excuse me, just a second, okay. Luke tells us about this registration for the purposes of giving us a time stamp. He's a great historian. Luke interviewed people. Luke asked, uh, Luke talked to Mary. Luke talked to many that were um, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, put all of his material together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this, he time stamps it during the time when this registration, this census was being taken. 
And as this registration and census was being taken, um, you know, not much is known about it in history. Not much is known about that in history, uh, but it does give us a bit of an idea of a time stamp because there are a few testimonies to it, even though it isn't one of the big deals of the old world. It wasn't something that just gets noted by historians all of the time, but it is a big deal. Luke lets us know when it was. It was during the time of Quirinius, and um, even though not much is known about this census, the scholars, the scholars use this data, and this data about Quirinius have determined that uh, the birth of Christ was probably about 5 B.C., that sixth century monk was trying to figure out the point zero. When was Christ born? And he came up with 5 BC. And uh, believe me, that is remarkable if you think about it. With the tools that he had, uh, and certainly no computers, no things like that to be able to deal with, he came very, very close to what we believe is the year of Christ's birth. And so we should never be concerned when somebody tells us that Christ was born in 5 BC. Uh, the whole idea was to pinpoint the year of his birth. And the monk did a great job trying to do that. There's also been a lot of controversy about December 25th. Is that actually the birthday of Jesus? Was Christ born on December 25th? Uh, most scholars would tell you no. Some do believe that he was. But you know what? The truth of the matter is it, it doesn't matter. That's not the point, you know. The birth of Jesus Christ is a biblical fact. The birth of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. The birth of Jesus Christ uh, is vital to the incarnation, like I said in my prayer. The birth of Jesus Christ is crucial to our redemption, as I said in my prayer. He had to take on human flesh, and he had to obey the law of God for us. And he did. And now those in Christ have his righteousness applied to them. We often think about forgiveness of sins. Amen for forgiveness of sins. But sometimes it's only half the story. We forget that his righteousness is applied to us, which is why the book of Revelation talks about the saints being dressed in white. Now I'm dressed in black, and, and if it had to do with the idea of my righteousness, black is appropriate. Okay, it is. But we're in Christ, white is appropriate. The birth of Christ came at the time ordained by God in the fullness of time. Born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law that we could receive the adoption as sons. Galatians 4.4. 4. Now, an interesting note about Caesar Augustus. His given name was Octavius, and he was the great-nephew of Julius Caesar. Everybody knows Julius Caesar, right? Well, Octavius was the, the, the great-nephew of Julius Caesar. Um, Octavian, as it's often called, is the first Caesar to bear the title Augustus. Augustus meaning holy or reverent. I said, well, Pastor Steve, why are you bringing that up? I bring it up because it's actually important. It will be important as we go through the history of the church. This Caesar ruled during the time of the Pax Romana, and that had to do with the peace of the Roman Empire. But it was a peace that existed because Rome 
ruled with a heavy hand and allowed no opposition. As long as you went along with Rome, you're going to do fine, you know. Step out of line, and the hammer's coming down. And it was during the reign of this particular Caesar that the Caesar was proclaimed to be God. It was during his reign. It, it was kind of whispered about and talked about a little bit, but now it was proclaimed that Caesar was God. It took a little while for that to catch on. It took a little while for people to fully accept that. But that kind of idolatry became a key part of loyalty to Rome. And eventually, that would be the chief reason that the Christian martyrs would come about. Because they refused to acknowledge Caesar as God, or even a God. In fact, uh, as Luke's writing this account, um, many of the cities, not all, but many of the cities in Asia Minor uh, would declare September 23rd as a holy day. That's the day that Caesar Augustus was born. So they would honor that day. And it's ironic, as Caesar the man lived in his beautiful palace, surrounded by every luxury available, proclaiming himself to be God, the true God, left the glory and splendor of heaven, came to this earth as a true man uh, and a humble servant, not giving up his deity, but adding humanity and born in lowly surroundings to humble people. Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem. I won't read verses 4 through 7, but you can look at them while I speak here. Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem. Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, so was Mary. But Joseph, as the head of the house, goes to his home village uh, and fulfills Micah 5.2, which says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And the point is very, very simple. Caesar proclaimed himself to be God. He thought he was in control. Quirinius called for a census. He thought he was in control. But behind it all, we know that God was in control because God caused it all to be, even ordering the smallest details, even the most mundane things, just as he is in control of the entire universe, even ordering uh, the planets and the galaxies. Interestingly enough, we all know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but that wasn't well known in his day. In fact, one of the oppositions that people proclaimed against the Lord Jesus Christ and why he couldn't be Messiah, they said, search the scriptures and look. He comes from Nazareth. A prophet doesn't come from Nazareth. A prophet comes from Bethlehem. And in their ignorance, and this is often what happens to people, they proclaim things boldly, not knowing all of the facts. In their ignorance, they didn't know that he was born in Bethlehem, went down into Egypt, came out of Egypt up into Nazareth, and the scripture was fulfilled. Well, with all that being said and done, we come to our, I, I would call it our first testimony, because it's our first testimony that we have in Luke chapter 2. That's the testimony of the angels. It was read in your hearing, verses 8 through 20. 
The testimony of the angels. The angels in glorious display, which foreshadows so much of what we see in the book of Revelation, and uh, the heavenly hosts that give praise to God constantly, they came to shepherds. Shepherds, the lowliest of the low, despised by many of the people, you know. Shepherds were in the lowest class. Um, tax collectors were, were esteemed less than shepherds, but it was close, you know. Tax collectors were hated for what they were doing. Shepherds were just kind of like, they're kind of a, a nothing. But that night, God was pleased to announce his, the birth of his son to shepherds in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And here's the application I make from that. God still works that way today. He still works that way today. He comes to the weak. He comes to the lowly. He comes to those of no reputation. The Bible tells us not many wise in the ways of this world, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But we know when he calls, the heart is changed. And the sinner gladly receives the Lord Jesus Christ as he's presented to us in the gospel. The angels could have gone to Caesar. The angels could have gone to Quirinius. They could have gone to Herod. They could have gone to the Sanhedrin. They could have gone to all those places. But instead, they go to lowly shepherds. You know, let me just say this, though. The Bible doesn't say none of the noble are called. It doesn't say none of the mighty are called. It doesn't say none of the rich are called. It doesn't say that. It says not many, though. Not many. Usually it's the lower class, the poor of the world, those that are not esteemed that highly amongst the world, the world honoring others or sometimes dishonoring others, especially in our day, in our political day, um, you know, to you, you, you love or you hate, you know, those in power. Okay. Well, there you go. But um, the majority of those in Christ are those of ordinary circumstances, or sometimes even the poor. And the angels were witnesses, and the shepherds become witnesses. Look at verse 17. The angels were witnesses to the shepherds, and the shepherds now become witnesses. Verse 17. And when they had seen him, the shepherds, they made known widely the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in their heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Well, verse 21 tells us something, and I'm not going to expound upon it, but um, Christ was circumcised. Christ was circumcised, and that was necessary. Because the law demanded circumcision for, for Jewish babies. And uh, Christ didn't really have any say in it, humanly speaking. He didn't say, Mom, I, I need to be circumcised. No. Mary and Joseph, being just people, being those that knew the Lord and loved the Lord, uh, then uh, took their son, Jesus, to be circumcised after eight days. 
And so we see that in verse 21. And when the eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And there's one of the connections with John the Baptist and now with Jesus. And then the redemption of Jesus. That sounds kind of strange, does it not? The redemption of Jesus. He's the one that came to redeem us. Verse 22. Now when the days of her, that's Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now, the firstborn in Israel belonged to God. That was um, the Passover. That's what it all is about. The firstborn of the Egyptians was killed, but um, you put the blood on the doorpost and the death angel passed over you. And then the firstborn that opens the womb belongs to God. But instead of taking the firstborn uh, of every lady, uh, what God said is, the tribe of Levi belongs to me. That'll be the priestly tribe. I'll separate them throughout all of the land. They'll be those that teach people the ways of the Lord. But since the firstborn, I'm going to take Levi instead of the firstborn. Since that's the case, then what you need to do is you need to redeem the firstborn. You need to take them. You need to give, uh, you need to give um, five shekels. Firstborn of each Israelite need to be redeemed from the service of God by paying five shekels. And uh, remember, Jesus wasn't of the tribe of Levi. You know? He was the tribe of Judah. Hence, he became obedient under the law to the demands of the Old Testament law. He is part of fulfilling all righteousness. You know, it's amazing. The Son of God himself had to be redeemed. And what we have taking place here is that redemption uh, being done according to the the ways of Leviticus chapter 12. We won't turn there for lack of time this morning. But Christ needed to be redeemed according to Leviticus chapter 12. And, you know, you could argue, well, Christ didn't need to be redeemed. But there's a situation like that in the Bible too, is there not? Uh, when the leaders come to Peter and say, does, P does your master pay the temple tax? And Peter says, yes, he does. And then he kind of does a, walks away thinking, I really don't know if he does or not. You know, I'm not sure. And so he walks in where Christ is. Christ, knowing exactly what had taken place, says, uh, who do the rulers tax? Do they tax their own children or do they tax the subjects? And Peter says, well, they tax the subjects. Jesus says, then the children are free. But so we don't offend them. Go out and catch a fish and sell it. Give it, to, give it uh, for yours and my temple tax. And so a miracle was performed in doing that. You could argue that Jesus should have been exempt from this tax, but God doesn't deal in loopholes. I remember that when you fill out your taxes this year too, by the way. God doesn't deal in, in loopholes, so to speak, but uh, he does take I should say this, because some loopholes are legitimate. You don't need to pay more taxes 
than you really owe. Okay, so let's get both sides of that coin there. But um, yes, so not to offend, we will, we will uh, pay the temple tax. The purification of Mary is found in Leviticus chapter 12. A lamb and a turtle dove, that was the normal sacrifice. But provision was made for the poor. They instead could substitute two turtle doves or, or two pigeons even. Uh, turtle doves are migratory birds. Uh, they weren't always in Jerusalem. So they could substitute pigeons for that. And uh, those that were truly poor would be actually uh, able to do something they could afford, even if it would be a sacrifice, which would be something that would be very difficult for them to give a lamb and turtle dove. Well, with all that being said and done, we come next to the testimony of the Savior by Simeon. Simeon, a man of God. Let's just read down to it and through it, starting in verse number 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So, He came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Notice to whom he testifies. Testifies to Joseph and Mary. The two who will be entrusted to care for Jesus. And we're going to see in a moment that he's going to pay special attention to Mary in particular. But in verses 25 through 32, we see that it was the Spirit who told Simeon that he would not see death until he'd seen Messiah. It was the Spirit who brought him to the temple that day. And it was the Spirit who revealed to him that this particular child was the Holy One. And notice the extent of the prophecy. This goes beyond what was expected. Far beyond the boundaries of the Jews. It says, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The Gentiles will be included. For most of the Old Testament, they were excluded. And myself, being a Gentile, I would have been amongst the excluded. For the most part, they're excluded. Not because God wouldn't talk to them, but because Messiah would come for Israel. But when Messiah comes, he comes for all people, no matter what race, no matter what gender, no matter what you happen to be, he comes for all people. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. That's a, that's a large term of everyone excluding the Jews. But the Jews are not excluded because the Lord Jesus Christ came. The Jews are included and the glory of your people Israel. And what we have, Simeon saying, is something that would be very controversial in the first years of the church. They almost couldn't believe that Samaritans could be saved. And then 
to find out that Gentiles could be saved, all the way into Acts chapter 10, to find out that Gentiles could be saved, they were amazed, and they marveled. But it's a marvelous thing, so that in heaven, there'll be a people out of every tribe, tongue, kindred, and people that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You know, thousands and thousands and myriads and myriads and hundreds of thousands and hundreds of thousands, millions and millions around the throne. Different nationalities, but all having one thing in common. Jesus Christ is their Savior. They looked to him and were saved. The entrance of the Gentiles does not exclude the Jews. The Jews that are excluded are those that refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like the Gentiles that are excluded are those who will not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 33 through 35. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him by Simeon, of course, about the Lord. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which should be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Two things to note here. The fall and rising of many in Israel. I think the clearest meaning here would be that Jesus would be a controversial figure, still is, in his own nation even. Many would reject him and they would fall. Others would be raised to eternal life through him. Uh, I want to take us to a scripture. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Simeon says it this way. Peter, who is a great exegete of scripture, puts a number of scriptures together to tell us about this very fact that Simeon's talking about. The fall and rising of many in Israel, and not just Israel, but really amongst the whole world. The fall and rising of many. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. Peter, in almost sermonic form, I'm not saying the first Peter's a sermon, but almost in sermonic form says this. Therefore, it's also contained in the scripture, and he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And I tell you, when I see the word Zion in the Bible, be it Old Testament or New Testament, I always think church, because that's the greatest representation of what Zion is all about, I think, church. And then he comes to another scripture, taken from Psalm 118, verse 22. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, and then he goes to Isaiah 8:14. See how he put three different scriptures together? Isaiah 8:14, the stone which the builders, or sorry, this is uh, Psalm 118, Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and Isaiah 8.14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then he gives his application to this whole thing. Let me just read the whole thing together and then we'll read the application. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. 
But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And the application, they, being the lost, stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But then he turns to the Christian. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, and now he's going back to the book of Hosea, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Jesus Christ is the great uniter, and he's the great divider. He unites all of his people into a loving whole. Some, some people are anti-Semitic. I don't understand that. I've said that many, many times. I don't understand being against the Jews because Jesus himself was a Jew. But he unites from every race those that are on his side, those that know him, those that trust in him. He unites them together, but he's also the great divider. Because at the throne, there are those on the left that do not know him and will go into eternal punishment. And those on the right hand that will go into everlasting life. And you say, well, that's pretty negative, Pastor Steve. Why would you say something like that? It's what the Bible says. It's what we need to know. It's what we need to believe. It's what we need to understand. And guess what? Christian or lost, you're going to be there. The question is, what side are you going to be on? The left-hand side or the right-hand side? That's the question that everyone needs to answer. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe on him, if you're trusting on him alone, you will go into eternal life. But Simeon said something else, too, as we're wrapping up here. Simeon said something else, too. Mary's own soul would be pierced by a sword. Not a literal Roman sword, but she was there to watch her son suffer and die. And ladies, I want you to think about that. How would you feel to watch your son be publicly humiliated, ill-treated, mocked, painfully killed, and then watch him die? Any mother. All of us should be able to understand that. But that's got to pierce the heart of any mother who watches their son treated that way and condemned as a criminal when he had never done anything wrong. Simeon knew that. Well, maybe he didn't know exactly how it was going to happen, but he knew the pain and suffering that Mary, the mother of Jesus, would suffer too. She didn't suffer for her sins, and she didn't suffer for our sins. But believe me, this great privilege that she had of bearing the Christ child bore with it intense suffering. But there's one more testimony, and this one's short, and this one's fast, but it's important. Verse 36, now there was one, Anna. Anna's a beautiful name, we still hear ladies named Anna to this day. 
There was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age. But of course, Luke being a gentleman didn't say how old she was. Right? We, we wouldn't do that. She was of great age. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years. Uh-oh, we can kind of figure it out now a little bit. This woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke to him for all who looked for the redemption of Israel. So not a lot is said about her, but what she said is very, very important. She testifies at the temple to those in the temple who are waiting for Messiah. She too knew that she would live until Messiah came. You have two landmarks there, Simeon and Anna, that were promised that they would see the Messiah. And they both give God praise. But you notice, they both were very old. That tells us something. Simeon was very old. Anna was very old. God had been silent for 400 years. Silent of inspired scripture. God worked. God did things. God was moving just like he moves today. God was working. But really, we call them the 400 silent years from Malachi until the New Testament. And now we have miracle after miracle after miracle, miracle taking place. And it's fulfilled to Simeon, it's fulfilled to Anna. It's fulfilled from the scriptures. But guess what happens next? About 28 or 29 more silent years. No miracles are recorded. Nothing spectacular seems to be happening. And if you were living in that day, he said, I heard Simeon say that Messiah has come. I heard Anna say about the same thing. But I don't see anything happening. It seems to be silent, like it was. Why would that be? The silence would be broken by John the Baptist. He will burst out onto the scene and begin proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming, and there he is. That's his ministry. Why another 28, 29 years? It's the way God works. God is patient. And we are impatient. Yeah. We're, we're microwave popcorn people, you know, basically. We're impatient. We want everything now. We, it has to be. It has to be now. I mean, after all, aren't we the most important people that have ever lived? Certainly the Lord Jesus Christ has come in our lifetime. Who could be more important than us? Look what we've done. People want to believe they're living in the last generation and it well could be that we are. But there's a lot of people that believe they're living in the last generation, and they're gone. We're not promised to be the last generation. Not at all. God is content to make us wait. And if you think about it, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. This is the day of grace. This is the day of salvation. And you know when the Lord's going to come back? I can tell you when the Lord's going to come back. I'll make this proclamation now. And in, in heaven, you can rebuke me if you can prove me wrong. Okay. But here is the date that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. Second coming. When the last elect soul comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
then he'll come. That's when he's coming. When the last elect soul bows the knee and comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when he's coming. And that's why none of us know when it's going to be. And none of you, nobody can proclaim to you when it's going to be. And if anybody proclaims to you the, that the Lord's coming at a certain date, and that's not the date that he says, false prophet. False prophet. He may be sincere, but he's not speaking the truth. Not speaking, no one knows. Only the Lord knows. But I will tell you this in closing. We don't know when he's going to come. But you don't know when you're going to go. You don't know when he's going to come, but you do not know when you're going to go. Let me tell you something that happened. Just two weeks ago, I've mentioned it before on a Sunday night, but I'll mention it again now for, for those of you. Because it's a good illustration. Irene and I were in the office, and we heard a terrible crash. You know it's a terrible crash when you do not hear brakes squeal before the hit. There were no brakes. There was just a loud smash, and chaos was reigning instantly. We went out there, called 911. Others had called 9112. It was an ugly scene, almost um, incomprehensible how it even could have happened. I don't know if the police ever figured out how it did happen. They blocked off the road, and it was blocked off for hours, so no one could go by. They were investigating, trying to figure out how in the world this accident could have happened the way it was, because there's just two cars sitting at a red light, just waiting to go down Grove, waiting their turn, and they were smashed into, and the car that smashed into them ended up in the park that was on this side of um, the little parkway that was on this side of um, Grove. Hit on the pa- hit on the, if it had been hit on the passenger door, you'd kind of understand. But it was hit on the driver's door. That didn't make any sense. But there was a witness, so maybe they figured it out. They didn't tell me what it was, <laughs> but maybe they figured it out. But it was tragic, my friends. It was tragic. The guy that was in the car that ended up over there, he was unconscious. He was hurt badly. A couple of days later, his godparents came and talked to me, asking me if we had footage of the accident. I told them that we didn't. They said, we just wanted to know what was happening. This this young man, he was a young man in his early 20s, was driving home from college at UTI, which was interesting too because he'd come up a different direction than UTI. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know for sure. But something happened. Did he fall asleep? Did he have a stroke? Don't know. But next thing you know, a horrible crash. And he was fighting for his life as of last Friday. They didn't think he was going to make it. They were pretty sure he wouldn't. I don't know. That's up to the Lord. But another man was critically wounded, and he was just sitting at the stoplight. He hadn't done anything, and he got smashed, and he got smashed into the car next door to him. Thankfully, that guy's okay, shook up. But this guy's in trouble too. Injured so severely that uh, probably will live, but life-altering, life-altering injuries. It happened just like that. Happened in a moment, and no one expected it. You don't sit at a stoplight and expect to get hit by somebody else. 
You don't come driving home from college and expect to be in an accident. What's my point? My point is life can change in a moment. Life can change in a moment and change in such an unalterable way that things will never be the same. But Christians have a guarantee that the lost do not have. Christians have the guarantee of being with their Savior forever. Even if you're in an accident, being a Christian will not spare you from being in an accident unless God so wills. God God can so will and protect you that way. But in his providence, you may be in an accident. But you have the guarantee that even if it's as bad as it could be, because you've trusted in him, because he did that first work in your heart, you have the guarantee whether you go to him at age 20 or 60 or 95 or whatever age it happens to be, and in however way it happens to be, you have the guarantee that you will be with him for eternity on the right-hand side. And the lost, no matter how prosperous they are in this world, no guarantee of good after death. We're going to partake in communion in just a moment. Let me ask you, do you know the only Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ, and are you fully trusted in him for forgiveness of sins? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is the good news. But Lord, there would be no good news at all if Jesus Christ had not come to redeem his people from their sins. That's the good news. The bad news is the reality that many refuse to bow the knee to him. We've seen this picture over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. We've seen how the lost hide from you, how the lost go about their lives, thinking there is no other life to come. But Lord, when your Holy Spirit comes, and if there's any that are lost here today, I pray your Holy Spirit would come to them. When the Holy Spirit comes, he changes that stony heart, that proud heart, the heart that doesn't look for anything beyond this life, changes that heart to a heart that's opened and loving you. That's your work, and a great work it is. So many in this building today know exactly what I'm talking about, for they've experienced it. And Lord, there was a time that we walked through this world lost, but now I've come to know you. Would you do it again? Would you save another soul, and save another soul, and save another soul? And we know that until you come, you're in the business of saving souls. We thank you for that. Lord, just bless the rest of this service as we partake of communion. Once again, may we look to Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners. In his name we pray, amen.